Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I've sneaked a little extra something into the calendar. So this Friday sees the worldwide release of The Midnight Club on Netflix. For the handful of you who may not know, it's a brand new horror drama series based on the iconic 90s YA novel by Christopher Pike and brought to the screen by the same team who made The Haunting of Bly Manor and Midnight Mass. Now, our guest this week is a major part of that team. Jamie Flanagan, screenwriter, actor and brother of showrunner and director Mike Flanagan. With The Midnight Club sure to pull in, let's face it, huge numbers of viewers. And I thought, why not reach out to Jamie and ask him to come tell us about the mechanics of writing horror for the small screen? Despite this very late notice, he agreed. A quick word of warning, there are no spoilers from the Midnight Club here, but we do go deep into Midnight Mass. If you haven't watched that yet, and I think you definitely should, bear that in mind. Also, there are a few minor audio issues with Jamie's end of the conversation, just some popping and slight static that didn't come through at the time. It's no problem, but as I tend to strive for audio perfection, my accent aside, I will apologise. Remember... You can support this show by signing up for Patreon. The link is in the show notes or just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. All support is much needed and much appreciated. Thanks so much, everyone. Now, come with me into the depths of a TV studio. Inside, a group of writers sit and conjure nightmares. Let's talk scared. Hi, Jamie, and thanks for joining me to talk scared today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Neil. I'm assuming you're pretty busy at the minute, so I appreciate you've taken the time. We're days away from the worldwide release of The Midnight Club, which is hitting Netflix on Friday. How are you feeling as we head towards the big release? You know, it's always an exciting week when a, <laughs> when a new show is going to drop. You, you sort of get to see the culmination of, of not just, you know, the writer's room, of course, but uh, all, all the work that's gone into it, into production, the choices that the actors have made that you wouldn't have thought of. Like, I've seen a little bit of this, uh, the show already in, in post uh, while they were going through um, mixing, uh, but a lot of it I haven't. So like everybody else, this will be the first time for me seeing how this uh, how it all goes so it, it, it's exciting it's just always exciting but I, I can't wait to see it i mean i should caveat all of this so normally this show is devoted to books but i always seize the opportunity to explore other avenues of horror writing and you make a particularly good guess in that regard because the projects you've been involved with are are quite literary in in both source and presentation the Midnight Club is adapted from a Christopher Pike novel. The Haunting of Blind Manor riffed on Henry James's The Turn of the Screw and, and Midnight Mass. Well, we'll get to Midnight Mass. But yeah, <laughs> the, the, there's a whole lot we can chew on there. And, and I will warn you that whilst I have some decent insight, I think, into the publishing world, I have zero knowledge about screenwriting or writing rooms or anything to do with tv so this will be an education for me as well as my listeners perhaps more for me than my listeners but you may have to forgive some dumb questions yeah the more i do this job the less i feel like i know so i think we're going to be good company today (laughs) that is reassuring to hear right so first of all let's set some context i suppose because you started your career in horror as an actor and then more recently you've transitioned into writing so, you know, what's the background, I guess? What prompted that move from one side of the camera to the other? I, I guess this goes back to uh, like high school, college. I was a theater nerd for most of that. And uh, I got my equity card and went professional pretty much out the gate out of college with this show called uh, Columbinist, written by Stephen Karam and PJ Paparelli, which was about the Columbine shootings. I stayed with that show, performing in it for on and off for about three years. Uh, that was first in D.C. and then uh, New York Theatre Workshop. 
After that, moved to New York. I waited a lot of tables and tended a lot of bar because trying to be a theater actor is very tricky, especially if you don't really uh, dance. <laughs> so um, I did that for about 10 years and I did some regional stuff and, you know, came back to D.C., acted there for a bit. It was clear that I wasn't going to make a living doing that. So I went back to school for medical uh, to become uh, an, an echocardiographer, so ultrasound for the heart. And I ended up doing that for uh, about six years. During that time, I got sort of creatively stagnant, and uh, I really missed the the creative side of, of my life. So I started writing a, a screenplay between patients. Uh, when it was done, I sent it into uh, my brother and his producing partner, Trevor Macy, as a sample. And they brought me in as a staff writer on Blind Manor. And I guess I haven't screwed up enough that they've kicked me out of the family yet. So that's all good news. It's, it's been a real joy. Uh, it's been pretty pretty fast. I think I've only been doing this now for about three years. I mean, that is a hell of a circuitous route into what you're doing now. I, I didn't expect the segue into the medical profession at all. <laughs> I mean, you started the whole screenwriting gig right at the, the top of the game. I mean, you know, two of the biggest shows on Netflix and what's soon to be no doubt the third of your biggest shows on Netflix you know I don't want to dwell too much on your brother because let's face it everyone speaks to your bro and you know he's a big profile <laughs> guy but I suppose I've got to ask what what is that relationship like I mean how does the brotherly bond factor into the creative ego in the writer's room do you get on do, do you are you at odds how does it work yeah, you know, I think like any sibling relationship, there's there's moments of conflict, but you know, Mike navigates them really well, and I, I certainly try to do the same. I think we work best um, kind of when we're outside of of the hierarchy of of writers' rooms. Uh, for instance, Midnight Mass. Uh, a lot of my work on that series was uh, pretty heavy rewrites from episode two through seven, and. A lot of that work that he and I did on that, we we did, you know, out of uh, out of this study that he has in his house where we rebroke story and, you know, came up with our own outlines. And then I went to draft alone and essentially just wrote five scripts and sent them to him. He did his pass and off they went, which was great. Uh, we've worked on a feature since the uh, the season of Passage. It's also a Christopher Pike novel. It's a sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been... Uh, going back and forth with Universal on that for a while and just kind of shaping that script together, which is based on a book that we both liked from our, our teens. And that's been a really lovely experience. When it comes to the room stuff, it's a little bit trickier because it's a, it's a pretty big machine. So you don't really get to have the kind of personal leeway that you would, um, say, working on something with the two of you in private. With something like that, you really do have to respect room hierarchy. And it isn't so much that you're working together. In that context, I very much work for Mike, um, which is, you know, it, it's lovely and it can also be challenging. Um, it's a bit of both because, you know, this is somebody that I'm used to being on equal collaborative footing with, you know, since we were little kids and doing like a remake of The Untouchables. You know? <laughs> so it's, um, it's uh, you know, it's exactly what I think people would think it is if they've ever had a sibling that they've worked with uh, not even in you know a professional context, but just worked with to create anything. Well, I mean, presumably you can't go home at Thanksgiving and say, "Hey, I went to medical school, so I win anyway." You know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't really go to medical school. I went to a technical school. Uh, echocardiography is a, a technical position. You you sit with a patient for like forty five minutes. You scan them and you map their heart for defects. Uh, the good part about that job is that. Um, you know, you learn a lot about the human heart and you do diagnose, but of course you're not allowed to actually tell the patient. You give your diagnoses to the doc. They second check it based on your reports and, uh, and your images. They deliver that to the patient. The tough thing about it is, is that most people that you are working with are in, in some stage of dying. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you do have your 45 year olds who are just coming in for screenings and that's fine. But most people that you see more than once have a membership and that membership is because they have a, a heart defect or, you know, just the heart's starting to give out. Uh, they've reached an age. And then as a echocardiographer, you don't get to sort of follow up with them um, when it comes to the end. It's just one day they stop coming and you just put two and two together and assume they died. That kind of lack of closure made that job difficult in the end. I think the, the 
people in that profession who probably have it the hardest, and I, I only ever interned with with these particular techs, are the ones who do echocardiography for pediatrics uh, and work with dying children. This segue is going to sound so bloody trivial now, but I actually, <laughs> I actually I'm mean so- what I'm about to say, but it sounds so contrived. <laughs> the Midnight Club is also about terminally ill children, isn't it? And when you just said then that the hardest part of the job is that these people were in the process of dying, the first thing I thought is I wonder how much of that has informed some of the writing on the show. Um, yeah, like I say, that, that feels like a really contrived, uh, cheap, exploitative segue. But let's let's roll it back. So The, the Midnight Club. It's the show that you're theoretically here to promote, but you can probably say a lot less about it than the other shows you've worked. I am assuming there's some kind of embargo on details at this point. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I, I'm i going to take my cues from things that I've already seen Mike talk about in print. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> that, Those will be my boundaries for the day. <laughs> so you, you can relax because this is a conversation. I'm not. It's not one of those attempts to sort of sneak inside your defences at all. But at the very least, you know, I've just alludes to the fact that it's about mortality in young people. What what can you tell me and, and listeners like me who are unfamiliar with the source material? What can you tell us about this story? Absolutely. So uh, The Midnight Club is about a group of terminally ill children, all of which are occupying the same hospice. Uh, this place called Brightcliff, I think in the book it's called... Uh, Rotterdam, Rotterdam. It's been a moment since I've I've looked at the pages of the book. And uh, after you work on something in the room, (laughs) the changes that you make weirdly after months and months and months start to feel like gospel. Um, So yeah, uh, Brightcliff is the name of our hospice. Um, And these kids get together uh, and every night they sneak into the library to tell each other stories, to sort of escape the dire circumstances that they found themselves in. These stories are varied in terms of tone and in terms of subject matter, but mostly ghost stories. Um, There's that sort of fascination, of course, with death and the unknown and that idea of the unfair nature of someone facing that in their youth. And you can see how people in that position would probably extend into things like defensive mechanisms like gallows humor and and also, yeah, you know, just spinning stories of what the afterlife might be like. As they are doing this, they also have a deal amongst themselves that the first one of them who dies, it's their mission, basically, to send a message from the afterlife if there is one. So percolating in the background of all this is the reality that eventually uh, one of them will pass and then they're all going to be waiting for a sign. And if that sign comes, then that's hope. And if it never does, that's despair. And that's the show. Right. I'm in in a in a tricky position here because normally I am fastidious about not interviewing anyone if I haven't read the book in question. Um I haven't ever read a Christopher Pike book, including this one. And I'm clearly too small fry for Netflix to send a screener to. So I'm I'm coming in completely blind. I don't know anything about the show other than what's available on, you know, magazine stands around the world. But let's go back to that first question I was going to ask to to flesh out what seemed like a cheap question. Your work in medicine with people in the process of of dying, did that inform any of the character work on on the show? Absolutely. Yes. Um, It, it, informed uh, the diagnoses that we we gave to one of the characters. It, and then personally, it just informed my approach to, um, there's an, an kind of an orderly character, uh, a physician's assistant that works there named Mark. I, I had pretty strong opinions about that character, having worked in healthcare and worked with terminal patients. And so I, I spent a lot of time focusing on that. Um, and kind of locking into that character and making sure that the journey for them felt authentic. Um, in terms of writing the main cast, the the kids themselves, that's really this sort of collaborative um, pool of everyone's experience in the room. And without uh, naming names of, of the folks who were there and how they contributed, we had people who had experience with, um, with death in the family from cancer. Uh, we had a cancer survivor in the room. 
we had a lot of a lot of different people i think pulling from some very personal places to flesh these people out in our story mm. and tonally i'm quite intrigued because i i know it's from a ya source and i know that ya tv has become a whole new ball game now if you you know you think about things like the 100 or obviously the behemoth stranger things where you can deal with really dark stuff without it really being questionable. But it still feels like terminal illness amongst young people is edging towards taboo, you know? Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Now, obviously, that's right there in the source material in a book from 1994. So it's not like you've come along and done something iconoclastic, but in a TV sense, in a Netflix sense, in a really big mainstream sense, how how was it kind of dealing with such tough material? You know, I, with something like this, it, uh, it becomes imperative to have accuracy um, with the with the diagnoses that each character has. So it isn't just a general, hey, we're dying. It's dying of what? What is that process? What does it actually look like? And how does that inform how these characters interact with each other? What are they able to do? What are they not able to do? And what what bits and pieces of them are they losing along the way? Um, that was something that we wrestled with in the room because you want to be respectful to the authenticity of the experience. That said, you, you're also working in fiction and YA and horror. So you do want to make something that doesn't feel like a dirge. You want to make something that has a sense of propulsive narrative and dynamic characters. Um, and so what we sort of leaned into uh, was that idea again of, and this is, this is television and, and storytelling really in an essence is, I, th I think the best stories are companions for loneliness. And I think that there are few people as lonely as those contending with the idea that they aren't going to be here tomorrow. That makes every choice in the show and every relationship in the show pivotal and important in a way that I, I don't think they always are with, uh, with YA media. You know, you were mentioning some other shows and I, I think sometimes you, you do watch these things and the relationships feel frivolous. They feel like, yeah, you know, they can fight, they can break up. And then, you know, there's really no, no lasting consequences of these things. I think the interesting thing about the Midnight Club is there's an underlining sense that any interaction between these characters might be their last. They don't, you know, approach each conversation with that subtext apparent. Uh, a lot of times they dance around it and bring a whole lot of life to what it is they're doing and a whole lot of energy. And I think it's because they understand that. But yeah, it, it certainly brings a gravity to things and uh, yeah, just a, a sense that everything matters, which is interesting, you know, because a lot of people think with death, nothing matters. Well, yeah. And, and I was going to ask, is there hope to be found amongst the mortality? Because you just said you don't want it to be a dirge. And one of my pet peeves at the moment is that horror seems to be becoming quite dirge-like, quite, quite one note, and that note is despair. And it, it, it's something that leaves me a little bit cold. Is this a show where, where it's got peaks and troughs, laughs and hope to kind of leaven the darkness? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think tonally, um, this bounces around a lot in a very good way, um, especially when they sit down to tell each other stories. The really fun thing about that is we ended up taking a bunch of different Christopher Pike stories to have them tell each other. But we didn't just want to sort of have them say, you know, it's like they picked up a Christopher Pike book and just delivered it one to one. The fun thing about that is you get to take that source material and then filter it through each specific character, through the lens in which they see the world. And these kind of become escapist fantasies for them. And so a lot of the comedy and a lot of the, the fun of it comes from watching them craft these escapes into imagination, where a lot of times they're playing on themes that they're dealing with in life and making them you know, uh, heightened. Uh, sci-fi you know or noir um pretty much any any kind of stories on the table and each one is informed entirely by the character telling it and that's kind of where they that's kind of the life that they they have it, it's funny it's interesting it's 
yeah, you know, they, that's where they bring their hearts. I, I, I'm really excited because one of my favorite tropes in fiction is the kind of campfire storytelling. And I, I, I mean campfire, that can be anything. You know, it can be, for example, in, in Stephen King's story, The Breathing Method, there's this idea of the club where these people gather to share stories. Um, or you've got Chuck Palahniuk's Haunted, which is a set of very disturbed people trapped in a theatre sharing stories that span all kinds of genres. And I love that kind of thing. So I think it's almost impossible to make something like that dull because, you know, you will always find something that works for everyone. Absolutely. I think my earliest um, experience with that kind of storytelling was Are You Afraid of the Dark um, on Nickelodeon mm-hmm. um, with the Midnight Society. And yeah, you know, that, that was a formative show for me. Um, and it's interesting that Pike had a very similar similar take on... Yeah, you know, uh, how, to, how to package a story like that um, mm-hmm. with a much more meaningful framing device. I mean, yeah, how scary is it, this show? Because we keep saying kids and YA and I'm making assumptions. But again, that's a, there's a spectrum at work there, you know. So is this a full-blooded horror show or is it something a little bit more kid-friendly? Where would you pitch it? It's certainly meant for younger audiences. Uh, I think adults will probably really invest in it as well for different reasons. Uh, Neil Gaiman's book, Coraline, right? Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things I love about Coraline is back when I first wanted to read it for the first time, I went to a physical bookstore and I typed it into the, you know, little book finding section. And I was like, oh, it's, it's here in two forms. The Coraline can be found in the adult horror section. And in the children's horror section. So I went over to the adult section and the book had a black cover with like a Times quote, maybe that said something like uh, one of the scariest novels ever written. And then just, you know, the title in white lettering. And it's very jarring to sort of see it. It's very simple, but very effective. I went to the children's section and the cover was like in and a little like it looks almost like a watercolor painting of a little girl holding a candle who looks like she's going on an adventure. And I realized then that Coraline is both of those things, uh, depending on the reader. If you're a child and you read Coraline, it is a fun adventure where you get to leave mom and dad behind and go to this crazy place where you fight a witch and win. And that's, that's a great adventure. If you're an adult reading Coraline, it's horrifying because you're watching a child that might remind you of, say, a sibling or a niece or your own child um, in a world where you are not able to help them, where the parent is gone, not just gone, but replaced Um, for an adult Coraline's a goddamn nightmare, (laughs) but for a child, it's an adventure. Uh, I think this is similar. You know, I think our kids at the best of times at the, at the most optimistic of times, you know, there's that idea of Peter Pan, you know, the quote to die would be a, you know, a great adventure. Not that that, I think that that underlines all their subtext, but there's something to them about engaging in the mysteries that they have left as something that they can adventure into. But again, I think watching this show as an adult, um, I think it's heartbreaking, start to finish. Uh, Is it scary? I'm going to talk about Bly Manor for a second to answer that one. Um, A lot of people have popped up and been like, you know, Bly Manor does not frighten me as much as Hill House. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, you know, that makes sense. Hill House has, you know, a lot more visually jarring things in it. Um, but for my money, I think that Bly Manor is more frightening. And my currency to back that up is this. Death in the haunting of Hill House means that you survive forever in the house with whoever else has died there. And for the most part, they're they're pretty nice folks once you get past how stretched they are or how dead they might look to the point where, you know, the uh, spoilers, you know, the, what is it? The groundskeeper actually orchestrates having his child die there so that the kid will live on forever mm-hmm. in the house. Now, The Haunting of Blind Manor, death works differently. Yes, dead souls stay in the house in Blind Manor, but they are slowly eroding mentally. It is like a century-long version of dementia that ends with an entire loss of sense of self and a complete nullification of who you were. 
that to me is terrifying intellectually. And yeah, that's why I think that Haunting of Bly Manor is actually more frightening than Hill House. So when that comes to Midnight Club, I think that the terror of the Midnight Club is the not knowing what comes next. Unlike Hill House, we get an answer to the afterlife there. Unlike Bly Manor, we get an, af- you know, we get an answer there. With Midnight Club, the suspense of the show is so much, will we carry on after we die? And it's that question that I think has scared people for since there were people. Um, well, well that, that's a question that we're going to return to in the chat about Midnight Mass because of a kind of epochal scene that will live with me forever. But yeah, it is a, it is a fascinating one, isn't it? Like the, the mystery of death as opposed to the, the spectrality of death. You are right. Mm-hmm. The mystery is much scarier. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, uh, you know, Nell popping in as a jump scare in Hill House is terrifying and and very scary. I, yep. I would still argue that the, uh, the faceless woman who comes out of the lake, once you Mm -hmm. realize the mechanism by which she became what she became, that to me is more frightening than the jump scare from the back seat. But, you know, I'm not against the jump scare from the back seat and Midnight Club certainly has its share of moments like that. So hopefully it'll hit both. Hopefully people will, will find the visceral scare they're looking for and the dread. Uh, and dread is normally existential in mm-hmm. nature. Um, yeah, I'm with you so on hopefully that. they'll get a, a mix of both. Cool. Talk about horror pedigree. Obviously Chris Pike's book is the main inspiration, but it's set in a hospital for kids with supernatural stuff going on. So the specter of nightmare on Elm street three looms large. And, and of course that seems undeniable when you cast Heather Langenkamp in it, you know, in this case playing who, what seems to be a sort of sinister scheming doctor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we watched uh, dream warriors in the, in the writer's room together. So yeah, you know, that was certainly an inspiration and we talked about it a lot and how much we, you know, admired it and loved it. And uh, the casting of Heather really drove that home for us. Um, and Heather's incredible and wonderful. And uh, I, I only met her in person briefly, uh, really for, for a day, but it was a, a joy. I, I got to have dinner with her and um, uh, Sam Sloyan and Axel Carolyn. And yeah, you know, it was, it was just really, really lovely to sit down with a person whose work I've admired that long and who, as you rightfully point out, is a horror icon. <laughs> Yeah, she's humble and hardworking and talented and everything you would want that sort of person to be. She's one of those uh, one of those cases in which you can actually flip the adage on the head and it's okay to meet to meet your heroes sometimes because sometimes they really are. I'm very jealous because as a horror child of the eighties, Heather Langenkamp is up there. You know, um, I had the pleasure to meet Adrian King, who um, was the, you know played Alice in Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, mm. and, and and that was a thrill, but that's a generation slightly prior to my horror viewing. So Heather Langenkamp is the queen, but I am terrified, terrified by Nightmare on Elm Street. Utterly can't watch it. Freddy Krueger in that film freaks me out too much, always has terrified. It's like a primal childhood fear. But Dream Warriors, I think, is not the best of the films because the first one is the most terrifying but it's the most fun it's the one where the the real imaginative reach of the franchise kind of like reaches its zenith i think you know so i i'm delighted to see anything that's that's referential to that yeah yeah for sure and i agree with you yeah first nightmare on elm street is exceptional and then uh i think my second favorite after that is probably uh it's another one with heather in it it's wes craven's new nightmare um which I thought did a beautiful job of in a meta way, sort of looking at the nightmare on Elm street story as Mm a, uh, as a rapper for a greater evil. And uh, this idea that we, we trap monsters in stories that the, the monster isn't so much the story itself. The story is the prison where we keep these things so that we do not have to deal with them in life. If we're lucky. Yeah. Despite, doing a lot of work in my life on meta horror. I've never watched it because Freddy Krueger scares me too much for me to tolerate a film, which implies he's real. So yeah, never actually, never actually got around to having the guts to watch it, but, but one day I may, um, when it, 
back to you and this show. So you're credited as a staff writer across the entire show. And this is where I re- reveal my complete ignorance to how these things work. Um, but I have noticed that you have a solo credit for episode seven, which is titled Anya. Now, having read enough about this book, I know that that's quite a significant name in the story, but that's all I know. Um, but how does that work? Was that something that you kind of petitioned for? Is it an episode that particularly speaks to you? Yeah, uh, this is uh, this is this is cool. I can I can take you through the the writers' room hierarchy and how it works. So actually, I'm not a staff writer on this one. I was a staff writer on Bly Manor, uh, story editor on um, uh, Midnight Mass on Midnight Club. I'm a co-producer. Apologies, IMDb is lying to us all. Then. Oh no no, no. IMDb. Here's the fun thing. Uh, they're not going to list the co-producer credit until the show drops because I can't even show them the credits to prove that I'm a co-producer. They list the executive producers before release, but they usually don't release the, uh, the, the writer's positions of anybody else under that level, under the uh, executive level. And under that, you've got exactly the ones I've just listed, you know, uh, staff writer, story editor, uh, executive story editor and co-producer and producer. Right. Um, and then supervising producer, and then you're into the executive level. Um, so yeah, right now I'm, uh, or at least on that one, I was a co-producer. Um, and yeah, you know, the Anya episode was one that I petitioned for. Um, I really connected with it. I, I really connected with the character, especially, I mean, I don't want to give anything away, <laughs> but just, uh, I, I went through a period of my life where I felt very isolated and I related to Anya's sense of isolation. And I kind of took that to develop a take on what I thought the episode might look like. And at the time we already had something kind of mapped out for it and it didn't feel right to me for reasons I can't talk about. Uh, So I, annoyed everybody else in the writer's room by bothering them about it. And uh, they were very kind and allowed me to take a weekend to essentially write a proof of concept. And I wrote the first 30 pages of the script over a weekend and came back and uh, showed them that. And it was like, this is what I think this might look like. Lucky for me, it was a, it was a, something that resonated with the group. You know, because that isn't always true. Sometimes you you bring in an idea and you think it's right. And uh, it turns out it isn't right for the show or it isn't right for the character. It's just what's right in your head. This was a lovely moment in that um, people took to it. And it, it seemed to make sense with the series and with Anya. And yeah, you know, I, I got to I got to craft uh, about the thir- first 30 minutes of that story. At about the 30 minute mark, uh, there's a really lovely scene that I want to talk too much about but uh mike came in and you know uh, all showrunners do their passes on scripts of course mike came in and wrote this gorgeous scene that follows that half hour mark and then you know after that there's a bit of me and a bit of him until the end of it but the first 30 is um is something that i'm extremely proud of uh and yeah you know was was something that i i went to bat for well i look forward to seeing that i'll look out for it but that that's prompted a pair of questions that I've always wondered about with with TV writing or, or screenwriting of any kind of collaborative sort. So maybe you can resolve this for me. First of all, to what extent does... I'm struggling to th- think how to articulate this. To what extent does the writing of episodes determine the direction of story? So what what I mean is, does Mike or, you know, showrunner X give you the overall story and then say, OK, please write this section? Or do you find the story together by writing it? Does does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it totally makes sense. We find the story together in the room collaboratively over a, a series of weeks. Uh, we call that breaking the season. Normally, there's a pilot that already exists at that point. You know, uh, in the case of the, the Midnight Club, um, Mike and Leah Fong, uh, one of the executive producers, had already written the pilot. So then we convene the writer's room, which usually lasts between like 14 weeks or 24 weeks, depending. And... Um, we all read the pilot together. We get a general idea of where the showrunner wants the story to go. And sometimes they have a lot of that worked out and sometimes they don't have 
any of it worked out except for the ending. And it's your job to get from A to Z um, as, as a group. Uh, for this one, it was very much that. It, uh, we, d- we didn't even know which other stories we were going to use or adapt. We had characters, but we weren't sure of their arcs or really, uh, for a lot of them anyway. Um, and, you know, we made up characters that we ended up cutting and other characters became one character. And, and then we all also had to go through the, the work of picking out other Christopher Pike stories and then pairing those stories with uh, characters that we thought would fit the bill. So yeah, you know, this is one that we we broke over weeks together. Uh, it was the same, very much the same for Bly Manor. Um, for Midnight Mass, Mike had a much clearer vision of what he wanted from the get-go. And, you know, I think that that was a luxury that we were able to, um, that we were able to kind of hit the ground running with that one because there was already so much in his head that he'd, had, he'd been planning that one for a long time. Um, but yeah, Midnight Club was more of a concept with a pilot, which was we'll adapt Midnight Club and we'll, we'll put the other Pike works in there too, as kind of a collection, but yeah, how we, how we were going to get, get to our ending. Uh, we, we didn't know when we began. That's kind of cool. Cause it feels way less corporate and more organic, but it does lead to my second question, which is how the hell do you maintain consistency when you're using different writers, different directors for different episodes, like how do you balance individual creativity with the need for that consistency, especially when it comes to things like character voice? Because uh, yeah, I just don't get how you do that. Yeah, I hear your question. Um, after you've you've kind of played with the characters for as long as you play with them in the writer's room, hopefully most of the writers have a good idea of the character voice. That said, you're exactly right. They don't always. And uh, you're going to get some tonally uneven moments and characters that have words in their mouth that really feel unnatural for the character because a writer, uh, you know, was just had a different idea in their head. Uh, so what usually happens is this is where a showrunner comes in. A showrunner takes all of the scripts and does a final pass on the entire season. They go through and they do their touches, their rewriting. Sometimes it's very light touch. If the original writer did a really good job of taking what the room pitched and, and making it into a script. Other times, if it, if it went kind of off the rails or whatever, the, the showrunner course corrects that. Um, and so the showrunner is, is responsible at the end of the day for the tone and the quality of all of the scripts combined. It's their job to make sure that all of these things are in one voice. Okay, that's answered that. I've always been baffled by that. I always guessed there was some kind of governing consciousness controlling all of this stuff, but it still feels like such a mammoth task to to corral all those different voices. Yeah. And to the point where it's almost seamless for the viewer, because it's very rare that I actually watch a show and think, well, that's not what that character would do. You know, so clearly it works. It just, I think the editor in me is just kind of crying at the thought of having to do it. It seems such a mammoth job. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, uh, the fun thing is, is when we break the season together, we, we break every scene and every action, every, you know, the meaning of every scene is predetermined before a, a writer goes to write the draft. We, we have an outline that we've built together in the room that tells you everything that's going to happen in the episode. It's usually character voice. That's that gets the rewrite unless after all the scripts are out, the network sees it and it's like, you know what? The show just doesn't work. Then the showrunner's got to go in and completely rejigger things by rebreaking story after the writer's room has already broken and no longer is convened. And that's a tough job. If they're like, we got the scripts back, we see the execution of what you proposed and we don't like the latter half of the season or we want these changes. That's also the showrunner's job to implement network notes and network notes can do a lot to a show. You can get good notes that, that push you in lovely directions, or you can get notes that don't quite understand what it is the show is to begin with. And, uh, you, you kind of have to hope that the showrunner can navigate those waters without angering the executives who are, you know, uh, for the most part, just, just doing their job. So it, there aren't really successes and failures. It's, it's, it's just kind of a tutorial chaos, the best way I could describe it. Well, I, I take that on board entirely, but from a viewer's point of view, I want to talk about a show that was 
inarguably a success in my eyes, and that's Midnight Mass. It's my favorite horror TV show of all time, right? I think it's peerless. Um, and, and some of that, I suppose, is because by God does it scratch my very particular itches. Um, I love islands. I love anything off kind of like the New England coast. Just think it's immediately creepy. And I, I've also referred to it as the greatest Stephen King novel not written by Stephen King. <laughs> now, now, I know that your brother Mike has adapted a lot of Stephen King, Doctor Sleep being one of the best adaptations of decades. Um, what about you, though? Are, are you a fan? And did that factor into your work on Midnight Mass? Because it feels like it's just permeated through the entire thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, a very big Stephen King fan. My brother got me started on him at a pretty early age. I started with King's short story collections like Four Past Midnight. And um, yeah, I, I adore King. From there, I went on to the novels like uh, Dreamcatcher, Bag of Bones. I didn't get to The Shining until like college, which is probably for the best because <laughs> it's so scary. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I adore Stephen King um, and have been very lucky to sort of pop up in, in some of those like... Uh, I think I'm like a court clerk in Gerald's game. And then for, for Dr. Sleep, I got to be part of the true knot, which is a dream come true. And uh, <laughs> it's been really lovely. I think the, and, and Mike's spoken to this, but I certainly agree. Uh, Cause I remember like watching this mini series when it came out. I think the one that inspires us the most is kind of surprising people. They're usually pointing to Salem's lot and I'm like, nah, uh, it's uh, it's storm of the century. Yes. The mini series. I would have guessed that. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, then. Yeah, you're you're on our wavelength. Then, um, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's that's the one I think that has the most influence on at least the shape of of Midnight Mass and mm-hmm. um, and that idea of the town destroying itself. That one hand raised in you know in the town hall in opposition to a monstrous choice. Yeah. Um, that that's you know that's one of the best Stephen King endings I've ever seen uh, when it comes to the aftermath of that and how the members of that town through the guilt and, and that sort of drowned remorse, uh, they all sort of implode. I, I think it's uh, the, the mother of, you know, of the, of the kid they gave away just mm. talking to her therapist and, you can see it in her eyes that she's weeping because she wants to confess what she's done and can't. All she can say is he was lost in the storm. Mm. And like that, that is living hell, that level of regret and loss and knowing that you had agency in that that's, that's living hell. And uh, I think that as a Stephen King ending goes, that's the most horrifying one. I think there is. Except for maybe Darabont's take on the mist. Well, I was going <laughs> to say up too. the the mist also has some resonance for me with Midnight Mass. There's this oh, same yeah. sense of a community under sort of claustrophobic pressure, and 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 even something like Under the Dome again. You know, of something about what happens to an isolated community when you when you make it a law unto itself, and how it always seems in horror terms to reveal both the best and worst of human nature and that seems to be the absolute distillation to me of what midnight mass is about whether it's whether it's faith or whether it's just humanity yeah yeah for sure and um you know speaking of the mist like mrs carmody you know she walked so that bev keen could run you know it's uh, yeah the archetypes that are kind of built into this thing um you know from the the sheriff in storm of the century to uh rahul coley's character uh Hassan, uh, yeah, you know, there's there's things that we're pulling from, you know, uh, Pangborn from Needful Things, you know, uh, there's there's a lot from King because I, I think that just like religion permeates this because it was such a deep part of my and Mike's childhood, you know, both being altar boys and all that. I, King's work was a huge part of Mike's formative years and of mine, mm. you know? Oftentimes, like these are the places that you go to escape the the idea that you've been in Catholic school since third grade, and now you know you're about to graduate and go to college, but you've been wearing uniforms and having the same crap haircut for for years and years and years, and you've been basically internalizing the shame that usually comes with a strict Catholic upbringing. 
I mean, I don't want to pry too much. It's a very personal question, but are you still a practicing Catholic? Because that show seems to have a very, very complex relationship with religion. Yeah, I'm not. I'm uh, I'm agnostic on my best days and atheist on my worst. Um, which is funny because a lot of people on their worst days become theists. God, please help me and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on my worst days, I, I think that there's nothing there. Um, and try to spin that around in an optimistic way to be like, well, then I should really be great here. Uh, but it, it's, it's difficult. Uh, anyway, I think what Midnight Mass, what I admire about it and where all of these stories went and they ended is that they extend empathy to each of these characters in the same way that it is a challenge to love and understand the people in our lives who buy into these belief systems that can be toxic and harmful to us. We love them and they love us, but their belief system hurts us. How do we reconcile that, that hurt with that love? And for me, that is the greatest success of Midnight Mass. Um, I don't want to give a spoiler, but especially a priest's love for his revealed daughter that there is no judgment in this case of, of that character's sexuality, mm-hmm. which is taboo in the church mm-hmm. that once it's finally revealed this relationship that his only line to her is God, I am so proud of you. That to me is the beauty of this thing. You know, where yeah. you can see people who are, who have their faith and are in these belief structures. I won't say abandoning it, but realizing that their love for their family members should come before church dogma. That's a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. And, and that's why I love the show so much because it, it was really genuinely about something. Um, and I love meandering horror. You know, I'm reading the book at the moment by Andy Davidson. I definitely recommend it to, he's on the show soon, but I'd recommend it to you, Jamie. It's a book coming out soon called The Hollow Kind. And it's a kind of Southern Gothic, deep historical haunted house thing um and it's that same thing it's genuinely about something it's it's got the apparatus of horror but it's talking about basically the history of the 20th century and it it feels profound without without being dirge-like or not fun and i'm not going to ask you to talk about the monologues again because she's been asked (laughs) more than enough questions about the monologues for those who haven't seen midnight mass there are these quite striking long scenes where people monologue and, and there was a lot of controversy and did is it true they they put a skip monologue button on netflix is that true not that i know of oh it might have been a meme i saw then maybe it was because i was just like oh come on yeah you know it, it, it people have this criticism and i think you know uh screen rant recently <laughs> living up to their name was like hey, um uh, what is it midnight club is going to solve the like the failings of Midnight Mass because it won't have monologues. And I think Mm. Mike fired back pretty hard at that one, being like, those are not failings. I would not change a word of it. And I agree with Mike. I would not change a word of Midnight Mass. What made it to the screen, I think, especially when compared to every other project that I've written on, um, what made it to the screen in Midnight Mass is the truest reflection of what we set out to achieve. What I love about it is because they're basically sermons. And and they're not, not just from the the priest character from everyone. I mean, there is a scene in Midnight Mass. I'm probably sounding a bit obsequious now, and but a bit fanboying, but it, it's, it's great to have the chance to talk to you about this. There is a scene between Riley and Erin where they, they sit on a couch for about 10 minutes and they talk about what comes after death. And, and it literally perfectly mirrors conversations my wife and I have had and and the the kind of dichotomy between what we think so my wife thinks that you know the thought of an afterlife is a comforting thing and and she's not religious but she sees why people crave that as I see it a safety net um and my idea is that nothingness doesn't scare me. We were saying before about, about the Midnight Club, about we don't know what comes next. And I think most people are terrified of nothingness. And, and I think that's a great reassurance that we just, we have a great life, hopefully, and then we end. And, and the character of Riley, in much more articulate poetic prose, basically elucidates that point. And I was just captivated watching it, thinking someone has kind of downloaded 
all these inchoate thoughts that I have about existential things and, and put it into a mainstream genre piece. So I got very pissed off by the kind of attention deficient response to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, those two monologues and uh, Aaron's last monologue, Mike had had in mind uh, before going into the writer's room. You know, those were those were tent poles he had mapped out in his head before a single word made it to a page. Um, and to, to see him get to execute those and execute them so beautifully, it was a really special moment. You know, I think when we say that we're proud of someone that can read is condescending because it, it almost puts a, a power dynamic on it, right? You, you're proud of someone who's achieved something. Uh, it's like you're proud of them for rising to a potential you expected them to get to. I'd, mm. When we talk about those scenes, I, I don't say that I'm proud of my brother. I say that I am impressed, mm. which I think is a greater compliment. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I am very impressed by those pieces in terms of monologue work. I love the ones that are in the show. I got to tinker with a lot of the, um, a lot of the father Paul homilies, uh, which gave me a great amount of, of joy to sort of find in the page. And, um, you know, that, that sort of equivocation of, of bending morality was something that really interests me. And, um, yeah, you know, getting a chance to kind of pen those homilies was was a real joy. Um, mm-hmm. And then, but I think the one that I I really appreciate the most is probably uh, Lisa Scarborough's uh, tearing into Joe Colley, uh, the forgiveness scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was one that I got to take a pass on, uh, and a lot of what I wrote is still there, and that's lovely. And you know, there's bits of me in there and a bit of Mike, and it. It's it's one of those scenes that I, when I watch it, it's just like it, this is, this is it. It's you know, forgiveness isn't a blessing. Forgiveness is a release for the person doing the forgiving, mm. and it still comes with accountability. Um, mm. That was something I really appreciated about that scene was that it it could have come off as just like, you know, I forgive you, Joe Colley and good luck in the world. And I now release my anger. No, she's still pissed. <laughs> and, um, and I think that that's justified. You can forgive someone and still be angry at them for the rest of your life. And sometimes that's not just okay. Sometimes that's healthy. Um, yeah. You, you can want them to change and you can want them to have good things in their life. And you can want them as far away from you as possible those two conflicting ideas can coexist. That's exactly it. That's what I'm getting at about the kind of philosophical stuff that's buried in it that I just loved. Um, But the flip side of that is that, am I right in thinking you also had a hand in the penultimate episode, Acts of the Apostles? Yeah, yeah. You know, I I did rewrites on on two through seven, so there's a bit of me in all all those. Um, Acts of the Apostles... You know that that that's a big Mike episode, though, because I mean the that kind of Jonestown moment was something mm-hmm. again that he had in his head before the room even you know came to be. I, I think probably in that one, a lot of what I, a lot of my contribution was structural and the order of events. And uh, I mean that is that that's quite a contribution because in, in a show that is the absolute definition of slow burn. Um. By God, do the wheels fall off? Do things go crazy in that plumber episode? It's one of the most incendiary hours of TV I've ever watched. Uh, I, I don't really have any coherent questions really about it, other than to say, like, how did you handle it structurally? Because so much of it is about pacing and about you know what happens when and to who. Absolutely, yeah. So there was a script that already existed that didn't quite hit the beats that Mike wanted it to hit. And so he and I had sat down and we had outlined between the two of us just over about a half hour of con- conversating where we where we thought it should go and how it should get laid out. The great thing about working with your brother in that context is we have a shorthand and we also have very similar sensibilities. So, you know... Um, it was very easy for me to kind of see where he wanted it to go and then to execute that. So it's not like I was there rejiggering the thing on my own. Um, Mike, you know, had a a very, very clear voice in that. Um, And I got to put my flourishes here and there and I'm very proud of those, but uh, 
yeah, you know, I think that's that's one of the ones where it's a what you're really looking for is dominoes. One thing leads to the next, mm-hmm. leads to the next, leads to the next, and um, and that was it. That that episode for me was uh, less about nuance and and things like monologues. You know, Mike took care of that. My job in that was just to make sure that the dominoes connected to get us to that moment to the church um and to make sure that everyone was isolated that that was the majority of the work i did on that one was just finding a way to make the situation arise in a way that felt natural and not contrived you move the ball far enough down the field that someone else comes in for the next play and can see how to get it into the end zone that wouldn't have seen that if it weren't mm-hmm. already there. So it's, um, yeah, you know, that's the collaborative process. Um, but I like to give credit where credit is due. And, um, you know, in terms of, in terms of, uh, crediting for myself, even just talking about it is, it's just <laughs> nice. And, uh, and, you know, I've got my, my name on the episodes and, the ones that I had the most impact on and that that feels pretty good well that's that that's great yeah and like I say it is really nice for us to talk to you about it because I've been just sitting thinking about it since I watched it and it, yeah just bravo all around and please pack up, pass on my uh my, my applause to Mike as well but whilst we're talking applause and recommendations I always ask my guests if they're willing to recommend a book for my listeners and and tell us why do you have one that comes to mind jamie uh house of leaves i always recommend um because it's such a journey and it's um it's a specific journey to each reader i don't think any two people are going to read that book the same way and a lot of that is going to depend on how much patience you have for footnotes within footnotes um but yeah I, i i really love that book and the simplicity of its message in my opinion when it gets to the end which is arguable of course uh but yeah yeah i certainly recommend house of leaves for anyone looking for existential dread i don't think there's anything out there on the market that's better between your stephen king love and that recommendation i think we could be friends because i (laughs) i adore house of leaves to my own detriment, people think I'm some kind of bro, pain in the ass. You know, I get that. But yeah, that, that book is everything. We were talking about meta. Like it, it's left nothing on the table. I just, I think it's a true master. I did a Patreon thing last week, actually, about kind of diving deep into it, into its nooks and crannies. So you're lucky you're speaking to me now, else I would have drafted you into that. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just <laughs> a great book. And it's nice to hear someone else say it as well. Um you said ex- existential dread. Last question: What truly scares you? Honestly, um, such a difficult question. Um, what scares me? Um, probably telling on myself here, but other people scare <laughs> the shit out of me. Um, in general, you know, there's there's the danger of of other people, but really, what that boils down to is not having a clear idea of what other people's intentions are. And then I also have on top of that, because I I realize that I can't read their minds. And so I don't know what they're thinking. I also always worry that they'll misconstrued what I think and who I am and that there's a power in that people get to write who you are in their own heads. And I think one thing that makes me, yeah, just kind of bittersweet and sad and I find horrifying is the idea that someone else's version of you will be the version that lives on however briefly after you pass. I would like the version of me that's remembered for however brief a time that is to be the, the version of, of me that I know myself to be. Um, and I don't think that's always the case. There's something very deep that I can't quite pin down about that in relation to being a writer and a storyteller it's almost it's almost like you understand deeply the 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 power of control over character and you're you're aware that just as you are writing your characters someone else in their own you know subjective way is 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 writing you in their own mind if that makes sense it feels like that's a very writerly anxiety to have yeah yeah i think i'd agree and certainly when it comes to the work that i do um 
and have been privileged to do because I think storytelling is a privilege. I try to give all of my characters the benefit of the doubt, even if they're an antagonist. I I try to um, write them in a way that acknowledges that on the inside, they don't think they're bad people and that they're trying to, from their perspective, do, mm-hmm. do something worthwhile, even if it's misguided. So yeah, it's, it's a trick, you know? And at the same time, you want to do that and have accountability. Um, and usually the, the, the plot gives you accountability, right? The other characters, you know, the, they, they provide that if it's a good story. And then sometimes in a tragedy, there is no accountability, right? There's anyway. I am yeah. rambling. No, I, I look forward <laughs> to seeing all of this at play in the Midnight Club. So yeah, to to reiterate for listeners, let's face it, I have no listeners who aren't aware this show is coming out because they're all horror fiends. But if by any chance you've been under a bed in outer Mongolia somewhere, it's out this Friday on Netflix worldwide. And I wish you all the best with it. I, I can't wait to watch it, not just for Heather Langen Camp, but for all the things we've talked about. Um, all the best. And, and, and Jamie Flanagan, thank you for talking scared. Hey, Neil, thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute joy. So I guess Netflix are going to get another few quid from me. I was about to cancel the membership because, well, I'm I'm pretty bored of how they take what should be a 90-minute documentary and then stretch it into six-hour-long episodes. And personally, I think Ryan Murphy is a plague on pop culture. But yeah, now The Midnight Club has come along and saved my membership. It, it does sound genuinely good. And from the trailers I've seen, it looks like some really quite creepy imagery regardless of whether it's YA or not and after all the Coraline comparison points to very good intent and after Midnight Mass I will give Jamie, Mike and anyone else involved all the benefit of any doubt you heard my thoughts on the genius of that show and I stand by them I loved it so much it had none of the flippancy or the smarmy self-regard that's ruined so many horror series for me You know, all the stuff that Ryan Murphy has been involved in, for example. Sorry, this is getting a bit personal, but (laughs) dear Christ, I once wrote a piece breaking down every season of American Horror Story, and I still consider the hours that I spent watching everything after Coven as actual theft of my life. And yeah, even worse, the article never got picked up. (laughs) Sorry, this is digressing a little too far into my personal animosity. Over to you. What do you guys think about Bly Manor and Midnight Mass? Are you excited for the Midnight Club? Are you a fan of the book or Christopher Pike more generally? I've never read him and I can't really explain why. It's possibly because I moved straight from Point Horror and R.L. Stein into Stephen King and James Herbert. I kind of missed out that middle ground of, of upper tier YA horror, but I know he's got a very loyal following, and his books do sound like they take a properly challenging approach to YA. So tell me, where should a newbie begin with Chris Priest? You can answer those questions or or anything else. You can defend Ryan Murphy if you like over on Insta and Twitter at Talk Scared Pod, or you can email me directly at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Please leave a review if you've got the time and haven't done so yet. They honestly perk me up when I'm bored to tears on the non-horror day job. And if you'd like more content from me, you can sign up for Talking Scared Patreon. You just follow the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Update, I've just recorded a whole slew of full bonus exclusive episodes to go live throughout the autumn including one on werewolves with a bona fide lycanthropy expert who's also an old friend. That'll be out next week to complement my interview with Rachel Harrison about her werewolf novel Such Sharp Teeth. That's next week, and I'm alone this week as my wife, hilariously, is off on an outward-bound adventure team-building exercise with a load of 18-year-olds as part of her engineering apprenticeship. I'm very, very proud of her, but the thought of her building rafts with teenagers 
is is pretty funny. <laughs> Though it does mean that Ted and I are holding down the four and hoping the ghosts don't pick this week to appear at the foot of the bed. So send happy thoughts. If I do survive the week, I'll be back next time with Rachel. But till then, start writing a story. Take a chance on something new and ask yourself, what comes next? Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>